one thing that I really love to do in conversation is to find out what somebody is really interested in and then just hit the play button and let them go. If you, if you can get Michael Petros to talk, and sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, he, he can go on for hours talking about the in- intricacies of the, the bowels of the organ up there. And he can talk about what makes it have a more French sound and what makes it have a more German sound. And one day after listening to him expound, I went over and pulled a book of um, Albert Schweitzer's writings on music and spent about an hour reading Schweitzer's uh, discussion about the difference between French organs and German organs. I didn't understand a word of it, but I found myself delighting in Michael's joy and Albert Schweitzer's joy in the organ. Get Josh Bales to talk about the different kinds of coffees that he likes to roast. And then when he exhausts himself, then ask him about his guitars and just plan to be there for a while and just, just enjoy the smiles on his face. Uh, a little while ago, I got one of our young people who will be unnamed because I didn't got, get permission to use his name, found out that he knows everything there is to know about military tanks from the time they were invented to now, and just who's got the best tanks in the world, and, and it was just wonderful to watch, watch him just glow in his explanation of them, or get somebody to talk about their favorite vacation place. Well, um, there's a couple who used to write for the Wall Street Journal about wines. Their names are are um, Dorothy Gator and John Brecker. They started the Miami Herald, and then they wound up at the Wall Street Journal. And then they wrote for them for years, and they still write on their own. Uh, You can find them on Facebook. And for years, Mrs. Kidd would, when she would find one, something especially delightful in one of their wine reviews, she would read it to me. And you could just tell that they loved wine and they loved sharing their understanding of what was going on. And so here's one that they wrote recently about a certain wine from California. There's a bit of spritz on the tongue and a nice hint of bitterness that gives it extra complexity. And the nose and taste reminded us of caramelized orange peel and maybe like the torch top of creme brulee. I don't know that I'll ever get a chance to taste this wine, but I feel like I already have. Now reading John 15, I feel like for the first time I get a sense of this kind of delight in our heavenly Father, the great vine dresser, who longs to share this kind of robust joy with the human race. And so I'd like to share four things with you today. One is just this larger picture of your heavenly Father, the joyful vine grower who wishes to bless you and to bless all humankind with this sort of um, excitement of, of taste and life. Then I'd like to talk about two specific things that the vine dresser does and then make an appeal on behalf of 
the Lord Jesus, who is the true vine. So, the Father is an expert vine dresser. God intends for Israel to be the means by which he re-Edenizes the world, brings joy and gladness and vibrant life and fertility back into the world. And so, through the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and through the psalmist in Psalm 80, the Father lays out his vision for his people to be a vine that would, that would be the locus of his life being spread out into the world. And the heavenly vine dresser wants to produce grapes that will make great wine with which he can bless the world. And so he's absolutely committed to providing the best care that he can for his vine. Jesus comes along and claims to be the true Israelite, the one who is that true vine, Israel's true son and seed. And then we who, who have tasted the joy of his life as we have accepted his death for us and have seen our lives being brought back to life through his resurrection, we, we become branches ourselves of that one true vine. And so, the first implication here is that we receive life from Him, not vice versa. And so, the idea of a secular Israel is an oxymoron. The, the idea of the church as a self-sustaining institution is a self-contradiction. Our life comes from Him. And editing the Bible into a manual for mere autonomous moral self-improvement is a non-starter. It's a life that we have that comes from Him. It's a life that's sustained, as Jesus goes on to say in here, by abiding in His Word, abiding in Him, abiding in prayer. Apart from Jesus, we die, full stop. We have one job, and it is to abide in Him to keep our place as branches of the vine. Now, so that's a big picture. The father is the vine dresser. The son is the vine. We're branches, and our job is to stay in the vine. Now, the father does two things for branches that are in the vine. First part of verse 2, the second part of verse 2. Now, in the first place, I have to quarrel with the translators. The NRSV says, those branches that are in me that don't bear fruit, he removes. No. A better translation for that word, it's ire in the Greek in this, in this instance, is not remove or cut. It's to lift up. The branches that are in the vine that are, say, lying on the ground, not getting sunlight, not getting, not getting rain, and are just separated from the rest of the life of the vine, the Father doesn't cut off. He tenderly picks up off the ground and takes them to a place on the vine connected to other branches that will uphold them and put them up where the sun can get to them, and where the rain can get to them, and where they can thrive. Many of us during this COVID season 
have felt ourselves, even though wanting to be connected to Christ, have found ourselves just feeling alone, lost, and barren. But what your Father does for you is He has pity upon you because He loves you. You're in His Son, and He doesn't cut you off. He works gently to take you and place you back into the vine in a place where you can grow. None of us is a lone ranger here. None of us was made to figure this out for ourselves. We were made to help each other grow. That's why we're branches on a vine. It's so great. I'm so grateful to see so many more people trickling back into church, presumably as you get your shots. And I know that there, there are many waiting online for, to be able to do that as well. And I know that there are many online who are not going to be able to do that for a while or ever. And yet you're here on the, connecting to us as best you can on the screen. And I'm grateful for that because you know that you belong to the vine. And you need to be as much connected as you possibly can, and God bless you for that. But as much as you and I can take advantage of being in the place where God's people dwell, and in one like this, especially where we have 12 pillars that remind us the foundation of the church in the apostles, and have the, the pictures of the life of Jesus um, in, for us in the stained glass that surround us, and the, and the witness of the saints in the upper clear story, and the reminder of the beauty of God's creation in the rose window at one end, and the, the powerful beauty and the magnificence of the, the Lord Jesus who will come back as Alpha and Omega, and especially the one who is present with us now, that we can be reminded that this is true and that we have a place in it, not necessarily in a particular pew, but connected to our brothers and sisters, where they help us grow and we help them grow. God bless you for being here. God bless you for the way that you have been helping each other through these very difficult months. And may God bless you as you continue to be a thriving, fruit-bearing part of his vine because you have sensed him putting you with your brothers and sisters in your place in the vine that is Christ's church where you become a part of the extension of his life. That's the first thing that the vine dresser does. He takes the, the, those who are in him but are not bearing fruit or feeling lonely and left out, and he puts them in the community where they can grow. The second thing that he does is he says in the second half of verse 2, he says, those who are in me and are bearing fruit, he prunes. He does some snip, snip, snipping. Um, Mrs. Kidd has planted 88 azalea plants in our yard. She knows that because she realized that there, it was a really wonderful season recently with flowers, but they're starting to get a little straggly and stringy. And so she realized she needed to, to trim them back. And so she had to do a count. She had to count them a couple of times to make sure she knew how, how many there were. And then it took her a couple of days to cut them all. But the, the flowers that will be here the next season will be even more radiant will, because the bushes will be fuller because of the cutting away. 
For those of us who find the Lord's life flowing through us, we should not be surprised to find the Lord doing some meddlesome pruning, cutting things back so that we may grow better. I don't know if you know the name Joan Didion, but Joan Didion uh, has been, since the 1960s, one of the most uh, astute observers of social life in in these United States. She's fifth-generation Californian, lived through Haight-Asbury in Oakland, California, and then um, wrote articles for Vogue magazine and other places and wrote wrote novels and followed especially through the, the Clinton years. Uh, Ms. Didion got her start with Vogue magazine when she was in her 20s. And at first, she was assigned to write, um, um, well, to write promotional literature and then to write captions. And then what her, um, what her elder, sorry, what her, what her editor had her do was for something that she's going to have to write a caption, she said, uh, Joan, write me a 400-word essay, and then she'd turn it in. And then she said, now chop it down to 50. And she'd say to her, run it through again. It's not quite there. Prune it out, clean it up, make the point. I, I got to say, for me, being here, having been in, two, in different kinds of worlds, it's been a wonderful thing to learn the economy of expression that an Episcopal homily calls for. That's different than a Presbyterian sermon, and it's way different than a classroom lecture by a professor. And it is, it's been a ministry to me to learn how to have a more precise way of saying things. Sometimes more is not more. Sometimes less is more. And it's been that way for my writing too. I've got a couple of books out so far. But the most joy I've had in the last few years in writing have been like some 40 articles for Worship Leader magazine that are like a page and a half. And I'm in my 13th month of writing like a page and a half daily devotions for, from the daily office for, for you folks. And that's, that's been just a joy for me. Five years ago, five years ago, I had the most fun I've ever had writing, taking a year or so to go through Dante's Divine Comedy and writing Twitter size, tweet size uh, entries for each canto. So 140 characters on each of the cantos of Dante. And which means you've gotta, you've gotta do, you've gotta run it through again. It's not quite there. Prune it out, clean it up, make the point. One thing I'm sure that all of us have shared over this last year is some pruning. The inability to do some things that we like to do. And the discomfort of having to do less. My prayer for you and me is that we have the perspective to see how we can do fewer things better, to focus on things that seem less expansive 
but let us do them better than we could. I once had a friend, and this is part of the way the body works. I once had a friend who had an extraordinary, extraordinary opportunity to go overseas and, um, and do some important business stuff. But it so happened that his, um, his wife was in the last few weeks of her first pregnancy, and another friend just said, no. The pruning there was passing up that opportunity so that he could do something more important. I, I just invite you to take a little bit of time and look at your life and give thanks even for the things that are not there that you wish were there, and realize that pruning is good, sometimes less is more, when you realize it's God's kind hand that's doing the cutting. Then the last thing is, Jesus raises the horrible specter of not being in the vine anymore. There's a place... There's a place in Israel's life that I think illustrates Jesus' Jesus's concern and the Father's concern for you and me. And it was when Caleb and Joshua and the other ten spies went into the promised land, and they came back carrying—you remember what it was? It was a huge cluster of grapes. It was so big and so heavy that they had to take a stick and hold it up, and two people had, had to carry it. It was— what Joshua and Caleb realized was that it was a promise of the life that was ahead of them. It was a promise of the sweet wine that could be made from the produce of the promised land. And all that it needed to do was to continue to believe that God would be with his people. Only those two abided. Only those two developed the faith and the courage and the hope to hold on, and the rest separated themselves. Jesus would have you and me know the joy of entering into the land. And that is one of the reasons that we have, week after week, our own foretaste of the world to come, our own foretaste of of the great wine of God's victory. It's why Jesus came in the first place and turned water into wine at a wedding feast. It's why the Bible closes with the wedding feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's why week after week we offer the wine that pictures for us the fact that we are part of the vine where Jesus, that we are branches of the true vine that Jesus is, knowing there as we receive the bread and the wine, the joy of the Father in us. This day, as the table comes to you, may you partake gladly with open hands, with joyful hearts of the great wine of God's joy and love for you. Amen.